Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film. Today, we're back with the sixth entry in our three films that got you through the 2020 pandemic interview series. And for those of you tuning in for the first time in this series, I am speaking with a wide variety of friends, colleagues, and professionals working in the film industry, largely in my backyard of Oklahoma. I'll be speaking with each guest about how the pandemic has impacted their line of work before talking about the three films that helped them get through it all. Today, I'll be speaking with writer, filmmaker, and host of the Hardcourt Honeys podcast, Shay Vassar. I'll speak with Shay about how the pandemic impacted her work as a freelance entertainment writer and her coverage of international film festivals like Sundance. And then we'll wrap up the conversation by talking about the three films that helped her get through it all. Before we jump into today's show, I just wanted to quickly note that if you enjoy our interview today, please consider leaving us a rating and a review and a follow or a subscribe on your preferred podcast app. In particular, if you're on Apple Podcasts, because this is the most impactful way that you can support the show at this time. And I'd also like to encourage all of you to participate in this series along with us. One way you can do that is by emailing us your three film selections uh, to our email, thecinematropolis at gmail.com. You can also share your picks by following us on Twitter at The Cinematrop or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Cinematropolis. You can drop us a note there as well. Send us your picks to have a chance to have them heard on this show. Now, what do you need to know about today's guest, Shay Vassar? Well, Shay actually came to me from a couple of recommendations from other members of the Oklahoma Film Critics Circle. And according to her website, Shay Vassar is a Cherokee Nation citizen and member of the Native American Journalist Association. Her film criticism career started as something to do to pass the time in film school at Hunter College and has since been published at Roger Ebert, High Country News, Film School Rejects, and Zora Magazine, among many others. Currently, she is working with the Red House Project and is dedicated to bringing authentic Native representation to the screen. Shay is also a Master of Legal Studies student at the University of Oklahoma, where she is specifically studying Indigenous Peoples Law. And when not talking about movies, she's also co-hosting a podcast called Hardcourt Honeys, which is a bi-weekly show that really discusses all things MBA. So... As you can tell, Shay has a, a pretty wide range of uh, talent here that she's sharing, whether it's filmmaking, whether it's film criticism, or talking basketball. She has a lot of really exciting perspective to bring, um, in particular uh, in the realm of uh, Native representation in, in film and pop culture. Uh, now, I, I have to confess, listener, this interview is actually my first time speaking with Shay, and I've got to say, she really has a positive and excited energy about her, and uh, an undeniable knowledge about film and basketball. In this conversation, it really came with a few surprises, uh, including more love for Diego Luna than I've ever shared on any podcast. Uh, but clearly, as you'll hear in the conversation, it certainly won't be the last time. But without further ado, let's go ahead and move into our conversation with Shay Vassar. We're so excited to be joined by another special guest today, Shay Vassar. 
writer, filmmaker, and host of the Hardcourt Honeys podcast. Shay, uh, such a pleasure. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Well, I have to ask the question. You know, we're sitting here in late February conducting the interview, uh, but uh, 2020, we're, we're still, we're, it's not too far behind us. How was the year for you and how are you doing today? You know, the, the new normal has been difficult to adjust to, but at least it is better now that we are almost a year into this social distancing quarantine but I've had my ups and downs. Uh, you know, I'm sure like other people where some days I'm like, oh, yay, I get to stay home. And then other days I'm like, oh, no, I have to stay home. Uh, so it's it's a uh, it's a process, but I'm I'm making it through. We're glad that you can make it through for the interview today. And you have done a lot of really awesome stuff in terms of like writing for uh, film publications and filmmaking and you've dabbled a lot of different things. Um, I want to hone in here on the film publication piece. So you've written for Film School Rejects, RogerEbert.com, Sierra Magazine, among many others. One thing that stuck out to me is that you're often writing stories covering indigenous or native perspectives. I'm just thinking about this in the context of early 2021, post-2020, the world we're in right now. Why do you think it's so important to focus on those perspectives, especially through the lens of this post-pandemic world we're in right now? The, the film industry has long centered only narratives that are told by a white male perspective. And it's not even saying that that's necessarily bad perspective. It's just we need to diversify that. And we're seeing a shift in the industry where more inclusivity is happening. And that is so great. But that includes having authentic storytellers being the ones who get to tell their stories. So we're, we're seeing a, a real push for this. And, and again, everything that happened in 2020, gratefully with with the Black Lives Matter movement, this conversation is is being brought to the center of, of just narratives. And, and also, you know, uh, there was a lot of building up to this moment with even Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement. So now we're in a, in a position where we are kind of picking and choosing who has the autonomy to tell a story. So when it comes to Native storytelling, for so long, Native characters or Native plot lines have been used to propel a white protagonist forward. And we don't we don't need that anymore. And and again, not saying that the films where those uh, where that was done is necessarily bad. I mean, um, twenty twenty was the first year that I watched Dances with Wolves just because it's so long. It's a drama. wasn't really on the forefront of my list of movies I really wanted to watch, but I did while well, I had the time. And I'm not saying it's a bad film. It is. It is technically done so beautifully. The the cinematography is wonderful. Um, the screenwriting is really, you know, you can see the depth. But we don't we don't need a, that was good for the 90s. That was good for 1990 when it came out. But we are currently in a very similar spot when it comes to native representation that we were in 1990, where a lot of these characters are just kind of subplots. And I say that knowing that there's a entire native filmmaking and indigenous filmmaking renaissance that is happening. I mean, us being in Oklahoma, we know about it a little bit more than some of the other spots, but it's like 
it's about to erupt and we're going to have such an overwhelming amount of just indigenous content. And that is so exciting. But it also means that that we need to create that space so that people are ready and, and are also ready to be, instead of it being like, yay, indigenous content and rating it an A+, we look at it with a lens that is ready to be critical and also um, continue to bring in just change in this industry that's kind of been in the same spot for the hundred years that it's existed, you know? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, I mean, this is an opportunity for the the narrative to to shift. Earlier in the series, we talked about, uh, I talked with Sterling Harjo about a related topic, and he was saying, we've had representation, but it's not been accurate representation, um, right. even if it's representation nonetheless. From your perspective, where would you like to see that go, like, in, as part of the larger conversation in film? Well, you know, I watch a lot of movies and television, uh, not just as a critic, but as, you know, just I love storytelling. And one thing that I've really noticed is how heavy a lot of these Native or Indigenous-centered stories are. So really, my goal is to continue to where it's like, we, we, and when I say we, I mean like Native creatives, are able to pitch uh, Native-centered rom-coms. Uh, Native-centered, just comedies in general, but where it's not just focusing on Indigenous pain, because a lot of, even right now, the Native-made content is focusing more on like a negative Native experience. And, And I get it, because our communities are so full of trauma that it does inform everything we do. But why can't we have a, I would love, like one of my goals would be to have kind of like a broad city, but with two native women who just run around doing funny stuff. And we laugh about it because that show uses humor to address certain topics. And it's not traumatizing. Like I don't watch that show and walk away and I'm like, wow, I have to really think about the heaviness on that. You know, I'm, I'm able to watch the same episode again and again and again, laugh at it every time, have the same lesson. and it it hits me in a different way and so that's my goal for for native content is i i think right now we we really do have an opportunity to process on screen and that is vital that is also vital and those stories are just as important but we also need to create space for indigenous joy on screen and that's the thing i'm looking most forward to is once we get into that phase of native filmmaking Right, right. Now, now that's that's super exciting, and it's like it's it's baby steps. the The progress is slow, but it is looking promising. It sounds like. Uh, so, I, I did want to talk a little bit about how you know Hollywood, the shutting down of Hollywood, rather, really impacted the the industry, um, particularly you as a, a film writer. So, you know, did that impact you know a the, the type of work available, but b the types of things you wrote about. Definitely. And the biggest change would be I I covered the Toronto International Film Festival in September, completely virtual, which while sometimes I was like, cool, I can wear my pajamas and sit on the couch and watch this new movie. Other times I forget how great it is to to be in a in a cinema with other people and have that collective experience. And and film festivals are really different because as a as a critic, you go in and you're in the same room. Uh, again, it's, it's usually a pretty big room if it's a theater, but 
you're in the same room as some of the the people in the industry that you look up to, or you notice faces and you're like, wow, that's, you know, uh, I'm trying to think, but like Richard Brody, I've been to a screening where Richard Brody was sitting there and I was like, wow, that's Richard Brody. That's so cool. You know? And so it, there's a certain just like camaraderie that happens there. And then, you know, when you step away from the theater after you just saw a movie with someone, you're able to go uh, grab a coffee or grab a cocktail before going into another movie. And you have that community. Doing TIFF virtually was very hard because I I was just sitting at my, my desk or at my couch and just watching these movies. And then we were supposed to go to Zoom meetings. And that's not fun. Like that doesn't, it's not the same experience. So it was hard to to really want to review films for a festival. And and then while you also had that aspect of it, you had less big releases at these festivals. So same with like Sundance, which just passed. And I also covered it virtually. Um, that was after I came to New York. So I was watching it just on my my little computer screen. And I'm like, this is not how I should be watching these films. Like, you know, and I Sundance did a beautiful job presenting them to us, but it was just not the same experience as uh, going to Park City. And I, I say that as someone who hasn't been to Park City, this was my first Sundance and I wasn't there in the snow. And again, shaking hands with like some of the biggest name actors and directors and then um, being with my other film critic friends. So the camaraderie wasn't quite there. And and there's no way to change that uh, this this quickly in the industry. So it also affected the way that I I just wanted to write because I I just wanted to watch so many movies and then didn't want to write about any of them. So it was hard to pitch because it's like, you know, budgets are lower or, oh, well, we're not focusing on that right now or, you know, so it was just kind of hard when you when you have a question mark in, in the future of, of an industry or if a title's even going to be released when it says it will. It It's just been that has been a really hard time adjusting. But thankfully, I do have a good support system within the industry where we have a group message and we are a group chat and we talk every day and, you know, both the good and the bad of what's going on and in our little film criticism world. But um, and we we do like, you know, happy hour nights and stuff. And that helps because while we can't have the camaraderie in person, we have been able to adjust. And so it's good to hear that I'm not the only one because for a while I thought I was the only writer struggling to pitch and and then, you know, want to write about cinema. I'm like, have I lost my passion? Like I, I had this whole existential thing. And then a lot of my friends are like, no, we're having the same thing because we don't know what to write about or we don't know if that movie's going to be released and we don't want to watch these screeners on our on our laptops or our iPads. So it's it's just a shift in the industry and we are seeing it come back and Sundance was a really good sign of that. Yeah, no, uh, I, uh, I can, I can super relate virtual film festivals. Uh, and you know, we've spoken very highly of our local dead center film festival and, and, and like, it's, it's nice that they exist, but at the same time, there is uh, I, I think there is like a certain sacredness to a seeing a movie in the theater where you get like an experience you just can't have on your couch, but B also in the, in the film festival world, like that you, you talk about the the coffee or the cocktails before between movies like that almost gives you energy and like and you're talking about the movie you just saw it gets you more fired up so it's a lot easier to write about things I'm sure uh, and that is certainly 
it feels a little more like a homework assignment unless part of like an experience, maybe, I guess. I don't know if that if that's accurate for you. Definitely. Because especially now that I'm doing like virtual school for my master's, it's essentially the same thing where I'm like, I'm sitting at my desk, I look at a screen, I write about it. And then that's the same thing I do with my film writing, which usually it's, it's a different experience if it, I'm going to even like a a smaller screening or you get with your friends and watch a movie and then discuss it or something like that. It's just, it's been a whole different. So yeah, comparing it to homework is very accurate and I am not good at getting my homework in on time. So that's how you know about my, my deadlines too. That's, those have been a little late too. (laughs) You know what? Some say, some say, in fact, I just spoke with someone today who said their best work happens on the, on a deadline. I'm not saying that's the healthiest way to live, but you know, for some people, it works. Obviously, there were some changes in the way you're watching movies. Follow-up question here. Did you notice a shift in the types of articles that were being selected by editors or people who are actually making the calls about what sorts of content they published? Yeah. So right when the pandemic started, there was actually a really great document that just a lot of freelance, either culture writers or any kind of art critic they created where a lot of the publications that we had all pitched at or had the contacts to, they were all in like a Google, a shared Google sheet where it was like, here's people who are not currently taking pitches because, you know, the pandemic has really slimmed out a lot of these budgets in an industry that is already, you know, you you don't have those kind of jobs that I thought as a kid being a writer, you're going to have where it was either, um, you know, sitting in a, in a TV writing room or being a journalist where I had to go like investigate and go back to the office. And like that doesn't exist anymore. And I get why financially a lot of publications have switched to just freelance because you can pay a little bit less. You can, you know, forget the health insurance and all of that. But for someone that freelances, it's also a very scary time because this idea of having consistent work is all about how much effort you put in. And some days, actually, like some weeks, I just don't want to put any effort in, but you have to. And so it was good to have, again, that camaraderie that happened where all of us from different, you know, whether it was New York or LA or somewhere in between, you know, we could look at this and be like, no, they're like currently not accepting pitches and they've been very vocal about it. Or, you know, and and some of this too was like, if, if other people got responses from, someone that was like, no, we've just slashed our budget for the next four months, they would put that in the notes. And that way we knew not to waste our time because pitching can be a very tedious situation, especially when you're still creating connections or if you're wanting to branch out to new publications. Um, So I, I've been very, very grateful that I have a, I have a set monthly uh, column over at film school rejects. And that has kind of helped me um, to where when I don't want to pitch, I'm still getting content or writing every month because I have that. And I love that that column a lot. And it's it's something that I um, I put a lot of time and effort into. But a lot of the things that I put there are things that I would have pitched, say, a year ago before I had that column. And I am so thankful I'm not pitching these things because it's very – even before the pandemic, it was very hard to get editors to understand that what I was writing was going to be successful. Um, And I know this is a super long winded answer, but I, 
one of the pieces that that helped me create a a little bit of a niche in the in the industry is uh, I wrote about the uh, native representation in Parasite, and I pitched that from like October till December, and I got so many rejections because people just weren't interested on any kind of negativity on Parasite. And I wasn't, none of my pieces I will ever say like that film is outright terrible or that film is outright great. I like to kind of play devil's advocate and put in details that maybe people hadn't thought of. And it's like a theory, right? So sometimes like I don't even 100% agree with it, but it's whatever my theory is, I'm putting it out there so that we can use cinema as as the art form that it is and really think about things critically. And so I just got turned down from so many people. And I almost gave up because I was just sick of pitching it, but I just wanted to write it so bad. And I'm definitely the kind of person that needs a little bit of a green light if I'm going to put in a lot of effort into a piece instead of writing it beforehand. And I finally got the green light from Zora magazine. And that piece still is you know, I still get emails about it. I, I've been, you know, I, people find me on Twitter because they're like, I read this. I had someone message me and was like, I used this piece in a film class. Like I cited you. And I was like, Oh, don't do that. I'm not that like, that piece isn't that good. But it was, I was also very honored. I won't lie. Um, and that piece has almost hit like a hundred thousand views and it's only a little over a year old now. And so I knew that this piece was needed because anytime you looked up on Twitter, like native parasite, it was people either agreeing, dissecting, or they hated the way that it was represented in the film. And because that film was being so talked about, I was like, I need to write this piece. And um, I'm really grateful that, that I had the opportunity but since then, like that was pre-pandemic. And so, I mean, I pitched over 25 publications. Um, so post-pandemic, I can't even imagine what that would have been like if, if you had put Parasite's release like a year later. I don't think anybody would have emailed me back. Uh, it just, it was, it was a very hard thing to pitch and pitching just is going to continue to get harder as finances get thinner. I really like how you frame that too. It's it's not necessarily about agreeing or disagreeing with the statement. It's saying, hey, should we stop and talk about this? Is this something worth considering about this movie? That's especially for movies that are, you know, being heralded as like the second coming of, you know, whatever. Exactly. I think that it just further goes to show that when publications, you know, sometimes take risks, it can pay off. Um, and also I think it just really highlights the, the power of, cinema overall and, and like the you know the power in cinema is often the conversations that happen around it you've already talked a little bit about how things shifted and you know how the types of articles that got selected shifted you personally how did you adapt to the changes in 2020 in terms of the ways that you you covered film via writing and podcasting or video we haven't even mentioned the fact that you do the hardcore honeys podcast which is again uh, a podcast so it's a, it's a pivot when you're having to do it remotely right very much so. And I mean, I, when it comes to writing, thankfully, the idea of freelance writing again, has has shifted so much prior to 2020 that the other than the actual pitching part and being accepted and having the green light for pieces you want to write, the idea of a lot of us being virtual and these 
these communities um, were somewhat used to other than, and that's what made film festivals so fun is because, you know, you would meet via Twitter, which I, I always sound like such a nerd when I say that, but you meet via Twitter and you love someone's writing and they're like, oh, are you going to, you know, New York Film Festival? And it's like, heck yeah, I'm going to be there. And then we get to be actual friends. And, and so you meet people like that and then they go back to, you know, say Toronto and, and then you meet again next year. And, and so it, it creates that excitement. And so um, because of that, that's why this adaptation has been so easy because we've already somewhat been doing this virtually for so long. I have so many editors that I've never even talked to like via zoom, like it's all email or Slack or, you know what I mean? So it's like this, that was the easy part. It's, it's definitely finding the motivation when you don't have um, like the structure of, of just life. And when I was in New York, I mean, we did, we were stuck in, in a one bedroom apartment and my fiance and I don't have a car. And so we literally did not leave the city for, oh my goodness, we didn't even leave our neighborhood for like six or nine months. And finally we rented a car and we took like a, a day trip upstate um, and did like a social distance day trip because we were like, if we don't do it now, we're going to go Jack Torrance on everyone, AKA me and him, because that was everyone. And so <laughs> like it, it makes it hard when that's like your day to day and you're losing, like, I don't know what day of the week it is. I don't know, because you can't even look forward to say like, I don't know, like a Saturday night uh, meal out at a restaurant because that's not even a, a thing. And so when your days go together and, and just finding the motivation to like sit and think about a movie and you're like, Oh my gosh, like that's the last thing I want to do. I just, I, for a while, I was watching really trashy reality TV. So I watched like all of Dance Moms because I had never watched it before. I don't recommend that for anyone because my lack of just like everything for a while just went away. I was like a biggest couch potato stuck in like 2000 and what, like 17 watching Dance Moms. I was, I, that was not a good part of my pandemic experience. Um, so I finally was like, I need to get back on it. And that's when I pitched my my column idea to Film School Rejects, who I had done uh, a couple of pieces with before. And so that helped is putting that structure back in. Um, again, it's only once a month, but also just like being kind of understanding with myself and with others that were, I mean, the pandemic is a collective trauma. This, you know, whether or not you know someone that has past or has had difficulties. I mean, the loss of, of even our day to day as as humans is such a loss that we also have to mourn. And so I started having a little bit more compassion for myself and then my other writers who, you know, like me, they had lost their their day jobs. So um, before the pandemic, I, I had a temporary job in an office and also a weekend barista job. And both of those went away. And so I, you know, you, you just have that structure that that is lost. So it's kind of, in a way you can, you can look at it and be like, Hey, so what would I do if I didn't have this structure in place? Or if I didn't have the idea of a conventional, like nine to five job, but also it sucks because I still got to pay my bills. <laughs> like I still have to pay rent. I still have to pay for my utilities. So 
um, that motivation, like how do you motivate yourself to, to make sure that just your basic needs are taken care of? So again, just having, having friends that can jump on a zoom call with you for, for a morning, um, coffee complaining session really helps. Um, but I, I've been really lucky that, that this industry specifically in the film industry has been remote for a long time. Uh, so we just had to give up the fun parts of seeing each other in person every now and then. Sure. Sure. And, uh, you mentioned there that, you know, you, you shifted to watching some reality television. Uh, I am kind of curious, like overall, was there a big change in the types of movies you were drawn to writing about during the pandemic? Yeah. And that's why I watch, oh my goodness. I watch like almost every reality TV show except for the bachelor. Cause I will not watch that. Um, but I watch like all the others, like Love Island, Love Island, Australia, Catfish. Um, I'm currently watching when I'm not watching movies. Um, I'm currently working through Jersey Shore. So obviously my way of coping is watching reality TV. So this, and this is something I figured out during the pandemic. I never liked reality TV before now, and now I can't stop it. So, but when it, when it comes to, um, writing about movies, it was much easier before the pandemic for me to write and, um, digest films specifically looking for that native representation. Um, just because again, I have my, my regular coping skills of like going out with my friends or, uh, you know, even going to a movie, like, you know, even if I wasn't writing about it, just the act of going to a movie, going to a coffee shop. But once the pandemic hit and, and I have this column, I realized how much energy, um, writing about like my most recent one was spending a whole day researching and then a whole day also writing about the history of scalping. And you're like, wow, this is really heavy because once you have kind of some of those, those cushions in your life that you, I mean, I definitely took uh, for granted until they disappeared. It, it was just kind of like everything weighed on me even more and even more. Cause I didn't have that escape or that, that way to break from more heavy topics. So I got to write about some horror films for uh, Sundance. And that was great because I actually started out um, writing about horror. Uh, that was actually, so some people like don't know that I'm a horror fan first and foremost. And um so I'll like say something about it and they're like, wow, I didn't know that you know so much about 80s like genre. And I'm like, yeah, that's how I started is I actually wanted to talk about like representation in horror films. And um, I just kind of found my niche elsewhere. And that was only because it, outside of an academic circle, there's not a lot of writing about native representation. So I just kind of found an area that I like and um, was able to offer some insight. But um, yeah, if, if I, if I can watch like slasher films every day, like that is my thing. Like that, I love a good old like slasher, uh, like eighties, nineties slasher is my favorite. And, and so anytime that my fiance would want to turn on like a drama, I was like, Ooh, no, I want blood and guts. And he's like, we watched that the last five nights. Like, can we watch like, <laughs> you know, uh, something a little bit more like content? And I'm like, no, more blood and guts, like, <laughs> which is again, again, like I just, I didn't want to do anything serious for a long time. And so 
Um, I found myself, I, I rewatched all the Star Wars films in order. Um, I, I had kind of fun with it, kind of having an excuse to watch films that might be, I don't know, looked down upon, even though I don't think I agree with the whole rhetoric of looking down on any kind of film. Uh, I'm a big Star Wars fan too. So I'm definitely not saying those films are looked down on. Um, so yeah, it definitely has changed the way that I, I approach topics. Um, and it overall, I, I have been stretched as a writer and I'm grateful for that. I mean, of course, I wouldn't want a pandemic to happen again so I can become a better writer. But I mean, silver lining, I guess. <laughs> Sure. Sure. I mean, you gotta, you gotta take the positives where you get it. And I mean, like, I think for a lot of people in the film industry or just in general, figuring out how to adapt the people who have been able to figure it out, you know, hopefully are coming out stronger again as like a, a silver lining, I guess. I wanted to shift gears here a little bit because another big part of what you do is hosting the hardcore honeys podcast. And I, I want to frame it this way because I find it interesting. For many people, I think especially for those of us who are living in the state of Oklahoma, uh, where the cinematic schematic is based out of, um, the moment when the Thunder versus Jazz game was, was postponed way back in almost a year ago, in March of 2020, uh, was a big wake-up call. So I'm curious, like, how did the year that was 2020 impact how you watched and talked about things even like basketball? So fun fact, I was actually at that game. So I had flown into Oklahoma from New York. Um, I had, I had, I had actually gone as press to the OKC Knicks game uh, the Friday before at Madison Square Garden. Of course, OKC won because you know poor Knicks. But so I went to that, and I was super stoked that I was going to two Oklahoma City games in like less than a week. Uh, my sister lives in Tulsa, so I actually flew into Fayetteville, Bentonville uh, Airport. I drove to Tulsa. We drove then to Oklahoma City, and because we're sisters and we were talking, we were actually running really late, and I wasn't on my phone at all, so I didn't know any of the stuff. So we're getting there right as the sun is setting, and it's beautiful, and uh, I'm like, we got to hurry up because like the beginning is so fun because it was her first NBA game, and when we're walking up, uh, a guy stops us and is like, you don't want to go in there. And we're like, okay. We just thought he was being an idiot and like saying stuff to us. And we're like, yeah, right. Like we have tickets. And he was like, no, you don't want to go in there. And I was like, really confused. He finally explained to us that like Rudy Gobert is the jazz player that most likely has COVID and that they got sent back to the locker room. And then my sister was like, Oh, well, we're driving back to Tulsa. And I was like, well, let's go get pizza or something. And I was like, are you sure you don't want to go in and just see what it looks like inside? She was like, go in and see coronavirus. Like she, she was so not having it. So, um, I, so yeah, that was when I was also like part of that wake up call where, you know, Oh, this might be something we need to take really serious because for a while we were hearing it wasn't going to affect the United States. Uh, at that moment, I was like, yeah, it's going to affect the United States because it just canceled the NBA. Uh, and that's like big because if the NBA is going to shut down, then like this isn't just a, I don't know, a small thing. So that was interesting because as an NBA fan, um, NBA has been my break away from watching cinema. Because again, I love movies, 
but it's very hard for me to watch a movie and not constantly be uh, analyzing it. So it's nice to sometimes watch a basketball game with a beer and literally turn my brain off and just focus on that game. It's one of the greatest things ever. And so having that taken away during the beginning of the quarantine was, again, probably attributed to my reality TV binging. But it also made me so grateful when the NBA came back and did the bubble. So I, being bored and not really knowing what to do and movies being a little bit delayed, I like started a podcast that called, I called it Bubble Play with Shay. And then I was hoping it would spur off into something uh, more consistent and not just me hosting it. Cause I was like, I don't know how to do this and edit and all. I went to film school, but I didn't pay attention during like the sound editing part. So I finally got a message from Jade from hardcore honeys. And they were like, we're actually looking for our, another like woman, like another NBA fan to, to be on our podcast and you seem perfect. So I did the trial and since then, they've been some of my best friends. So the the format of it is where Taylor, he is in Minnesota. He's a Timberwolves fan. Uh, and he comes up with the questions and he interviews Jade and I like we are the experts. And it kind of flips the script on normal sports journalism, where it's usually women asking the men. Uh, obviously, that's changed a little bit in the last couple of years, but it's still heavily male dominated in that industry. So it's fun for us to be the official. And uh, so we're all small market teams. You have, Like I said, Taylor with the Timberwolves. Jade is right outside Toronto. So she's a Raptors fan. And then um, I'm Oklahoma City. So it's fun to have our, our opinions from smaller teams. Right now, not so great teams. And, and we just, we have fun with it. And, and we kind of push buttons on purpose with people who like love LeBron and Lakers fans and, and uh, all of that. And, and it's just, it's a great thing to have an outlet outside of movies because once movies become your, your work, they're no longer the exact outlet anymore. And I'm okay with that. I, I try to warn people who are like, I want to start doing what you're doing. I'm like, no, you have to be ready to not have movies as your outlet anymore because you're, all of a sudden, like, why is the lighting like this? Well, that wasn't consistent. And it is so hard to turn that part off. Um, so NBA has really, really been my my pride and joy. And when that bubble came back, and we were having like four games a day, I would watch all four. I love, love, loved it. And so I'm, I'm really happy to have the NBA. And uh, yeah, it NBA and movies are like my two things. So <laughs> Both tragically missing for part of 2020, but with the, the bubble, which again, uh, kudos to the NBA because not all sports associations took it that seriously uh, and thus had to close stuff down again. Um, so kudos to the NBA, but uh, I am very glad for you. Not a basketball person, but I like that it's around. I like that I can catch the highlights. I like that I still have like small Zoom chats with my uh, coworkers at my day job about the Thunder. Um, so it, it is, it's just really nice. It's pleasant. And it's, I know that's the sort of stuff that kind of like helps us all, you know, kind of reminds everyone that we're all kind of 
living in the same city or the same town or, you know, um, so it's, it's been, it's been good to have it back for sure. And, uh, listeners make sure to check out her podcast. It's some uh, really good stuff. I, I, I checked out a couple episodes and, uh, not a basketball guy, but I did find the conversation and banter to be a lot of fun. Uh, Shay, we're about to move into the second part of our interview here, but first, before we do, I want to talk a little bit about how 2021 is looking comparative to last year. Are things looking up? Are they about the same or are they looking entirely different for you? Well, they are looking up. If all things go as planned, uh, this is not work-related, but I should be getting married in October, which, again, if it ends up being virtual, uh, it'll be a Zoom link. So, you know, we can have 10,000 people. Actually, I don't know if Zoom allows 10,000 people, so I'm not going to extend the invitation to the world. But, um, you know, so I've been working on that, and uh, I love planning things. So, And I love not spending money, so I'm trying to spend as little money as possible and have the most fun. So that's... That's my personal news, but already I I feel very confident. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it, it, he proposed right before I came to Oklahoma, uh, and so he'll be coming to Oklahoma in 10 days for the first time. So I'm excited to, to introduce him to Oklahoma things. Yeah, yeah, it'll be fun. Um, but then uh, writing-wise, you know, like I said, Sundance has been uh, – it was a really great experience. Again, it was still a virtual festival, but Sundance really put a a great expectation on future virtual festivals just because it was organized. Um, there was great communication. It was easy to access. Um, and so I, I liked covering a festival like that. And, you know, as, as time goes on, there... Oh, I hate admitting this, but there might be a need for more virtual festivals from now on, even in a post-COVID world, just because it's, it is pretty easy. I mean, you can have more people access it uh, who might not be able to, say, travel. And that I really liked. Um, and then, you know, I, I have had some opportunities and, and just reaching out with other people. I've been on a lot of podcasts, which is great because, again, I'm a podcaster, but I also love to talk. So as an extrovert who is still like not able to go into big crowds of people, podcasts have been a great way for me to reach out to other people, reach out to different communities and talk, which is something I love doing. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, things are definitely looking up and uh, I, I have good expectations for 2021 and I feel like no one says that anymore unless they really mean it because after we were all like, yeah, 2020 is the year and a couple months in it got shut down. We keep those expectations like very realistic nowadays, but I do have good expectations for the rest of the year. Well, very cool. Earlier in the series, I spoke with uh, Alex Picard Davis, who had talked about how essentially what you're saying is basically they can't do a dead center film festival again without the virtual component because it was so successful and the, the feedback was so positive and people from around the world were able to watch it. So, I mean, it sounds like, uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic, the, the and it sounds like you, you agree that the virtual component of a lot of these, at least the major film festivals is going to uh, stick around. So um, very excited to see what that looks like. Well, congratulations again on the big news. We're going to shift it even further into the the personal notes here because I, I want to talk to you about three different films uh, that you selected that helped get you through uh, the especially challenging year that was 2020. And I'm excited to hear exactly what all you picked. Uh, now, of course, uh, these three films are not ranked in any particular order. Um, so with that note, what is the first film that you've selected for us today? So when... 
I first started thinking about this, the first one that came to mind was Blood Quantum by Jeff Barnaby. So how long were you out there for? I lost track of the time. Did you get bit? This planet we're on is so sick of our shit. That's why the dead keep coming back to life. You're immune. I'm not. What if my baby isn't either? Run! It was very timely that this was released during a pandemic. The movie is a zombie. It's an indigenous zombie film. Uh, about kind of a disease going on that native people are just not like they don't get the zombie disease. So that was fun. And again, blood and guts are my thing. So uh, it it was fun to watch blood and guts and native actors like you get both in one. So I watched that several times. And that's my number one. Again, non ranked, but number one. <laughs> I mean, so that's like a a, yes. a Shavisser special. You you get all the things you like in one movie. Well, yeah, I just I I love seeing um, also like native creatives that are able to break out of like a trauma story because like again, Barnaby knows how to handle some of the the issues, but then it's funny. There's tons of uh, again blood and guts, special effects, uh, good acting. Um, so that all in one like it just it's not your typical just kind of like sad drama it it is gory and i loved it for listeners out there who might not be familiar was this a a film that came out last year or or did you have a previous history with it no so it actually it came out and i want to say april of 2020 so again this is back when you know we were starting to realize that it this was not just a a month or couple week thing so the release happened where I think they were supposed to have a limited release in theaters. It just went immediately to Shutter, the horror movie streaming site. And uh, so that was cool that they, I mean, if you're going to use a pandemic to and people sitting at home to your advantage, there's definitely a way to do that. And so this film was definitely it. And I know a lot of different people said something similar where it was like, it was perfect timing for us kind of sitting and not knowing the future of uh, even like the immediate future. You know, we didn't know what the next day was going to look like anymore. So it it's great to have a film that was just, there was no way to know it was going to be as timely as it was. Most definitely. And uh, do you expect uh, you expect the film to stick with you in the you know months or years ahead? Or do you think this is like a one time watcher where you're like, it was just the right movie at the right time? Um, well, I've I've watched it a couple of times now during the pandemic. And so I, I, I think it's going to stick with me. Uh, again, zombies are actually not my favorite of the horror monsters. So the fact that I rewatch a zombie film more than once is actually already saying a lot. But it just, it, it is so cool to see. And I really like Jeff Barnaby's style. He did a film a couple of years back called Rhymes for Young Ghouls. I always say gowls because I'm from Oklahoma and we want to make that O sound weird all the time. But Rhymes for Young Ghouls. And so that film was a lot heavier, but it was still like, it's a thriller. It has a lot of gorg, and uh, but it's a little bit more drama based. While this one is is more 
uh, genre film, you know, with with the great special effects and and kind of a sci-fi twist with the zombies. And so I I have a feeling I'll I'll rewatch it a couple more times. And then once uh, Jeff Barnaby has the opportunity to make another film, I'll probably just start at the beginning again with Rhymes for Young Ghouls and then do Blood Quantum and then the new one, you know, and just kind of like let it build on top of each other. Yeah, yeah. Rewatch the whole oeuvre of films uh, before the next release. I, I do that with Ryan Johnson films as well. Pretty much anytime he's got a, a new one coming out, I'm like, all right, let's go back to, to Brick and then power our way through. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, listeners, that film is Blood Quantum. All right, Shay. Well, let's go ahead and move on to your second film. What is the next film that you selected for us today? So this goes back to where I mentioned Star Wars. Um, so... <laughs> One of my favorite movies of, I'm going to say all time, and this is going to sound really ridiculous, but is Rogue One. (laughs) So that's my second choice, is Rogue One. The world is coming undone. Imperial flags reign across the galaxy. Can you be trusted without your shackles? Let's just get this over with, shall we? We have a mission for you. A major weapons test is imminent. We need to know how to destroy it. If you're really doing this, I want to help. I'd love to elaborate here. I mean, we could literally talk, we we could probably talk for hours about Star Wars. So um, I, yeah. I have to keep it short, but at the same time, I really want to hear exactly the, the why and the rationale. Uh, fill me in here. What exactly about Rogue One sticks out to you? You know, layer one as a Star Wars film, what do you think make, sets it apart from the rest? But also part two, as you said, one of the best films ever made. So like, like what about it makes it one of the greatest films or at least one of your favorite films? So Rogue One, I've always had like a really deep connection to Star Wars. I kind of lost it as I got older. Um, And then Rogue One was kind of what brought me back in because I hot take, I didn't love the whole Ray series. Um, I thought they were fine. And I I knew that if I was younger, I would have loved them because it it's really just reviving a lot of the same story for a new generation. And I know while Disney is not thinking of the kids first, they're thinking of money first. And, and, and that idea, it's so great to see young kids going to uh, Disney World or on Halloween and dressing up as characters and having the same interest in it in the same way that I did with Padme when I was younger. So I love, love, love that. But they just didn't hit me on an emotional level um, but Rogue One did because it, it gives a backstory. And as a writer, I love having uh, layers on layers and development of motivation and, and all of that. So I loved how it filled in this blank that I didn't even re- realize was there between, uh, you know, really before the first one, first one in quotes, because that's when Leia, you know, is getting the Death Star plans and all of that. But it just fits so nicely. And just the creativity there was was beautiful. And then, you know, obviously a spoiler. So if you have not listened to Rogue One, I do not recommend you listen to what I'm about to say. But the the idea that these, like, I, I wrote a piece on Rogue One, and this is way before the pandemic, about why I loved it. And I called them like a ragamuffin crew, because you have 
these people that really don't fit together that do in the film who are so dedicated to to bringing down the the bad guys that they're willing to die for it and I loved that hint of darkness in Star Wars because it's always been there. It just hasn't been as outright there until Rogue One. And so that ending really crushed me. But it also, again, it it brings up so much emotion when it comes to sacrifice and, and this idea of of what people have done in order for, for other generations to have a better life. And so that really hit me. Uh, and that's why I think it's one of the best Star Wars films. Like, and I say that as someone who's like, yeah, okay, the special effects and like the cinematography are good, but they're, you know, probably better in other movies. But the writing of that one really um, got me. And I'm also a huge Diego Luna fan. So I I really love Diego Luna. Um, so that also helped my, my case there. So every time I watch the movie and Cassian comes on for the first time, I like, I, I say something like it, it differs each time, but I'm just like, Oh my God. Or, Oh, look, if I'm with my fiance, I'm like, why don't you look like that? Which is really mean. Uh, but at this point he's used to it because he knows that that's like my, my guy is Diego Luna. So um, it's just, it's kind of been my comfort film for a while. And, and that's why during the pandemic, if I was feeling a little sad um, and reality shows uh, weren't quite hitting hitting that that sadness anymore, I would turn on Rogue One. It's always just a safe film for me. Definitely. I mean, I have to ask now, it sounds like you're pretty jazzed about the upcoming Disney Plus series and or will you get your weekly helping of uh, Diego Luna? Yes? Oh my gosh, yes. Yes. Uh, I am so excited that if, if I have to admit, like the whole postponing the Cassian series has really disappointed me. And for a while it was rumored that they were going to cancel it. And then, um, you know, I watched a lot, like I don't do this for anyone else. So this is not like, I'm not a total like nerd, but I kind of am um, where anytime like Diego does uh, late night TV shows, I like watch the clips the next day and he's been in London and that's where they shoot star Wars stuff. So he was talking a little bit about it, but they can't get into much detail. But the fact that he's in London shooting it, I'm like, we're getting it soon. I don't care if soon is like a year because that's soon enough. Uh, but I, I'm so excited. I have people already that are like, you're going to do like a weekly podcast about it, right? Or <laughs> they're like, people are already like contacting me about doing Diego Luna content, um, which I might if I have the time. Uh but I just, you know, I, I'm a big Diego Luna fan. So, yeah. Uh, noted. Firstly, you should absolutely do a podcast on it. Uh, secondly, I will probably at some point talk about it on this podcast. So you're always welcome to join. I'll have to make sure to issue an invitation once we get a release date. A lot of people, will, not on the series in particular, but a lot of people talk about Star Wars as being a really big, like foundational block of, you know, their film going journey. But I don't hear a lot of people talk about the new ones as much because it's so fresh in everyone's mind. Um, but I, I think like that Rogue One, I really do wonder, like kind of like what you're talking about here, if that sentiment might be more common even in like five to ten years. Um, just because I I know that I had, had some coworkers and some friends who say, yeah, Rogue One is my daughter's favorite Star Wars movie, you know, and, you know, her daughter's like 10 or 11 or something. So it's um it's really exciting. And I think, too, it, it's only going to open up the opportunities for even more Star Wars stories. Great selection. 
Uh, okay, so let's let's go ahead and move on to your final selection today. Uh, what is the last movie that comes to mind when you think about getting through, uh, you know, the year full of uh, unprecedented times or the the new normal? So this was hard because I wanted to pick a film that captured. Um, I went through a big stage in November where I was watching a lot of film noirs and neo noirs. Um, again, that's where you get a lot of your basis for even horror films today because it's that building of suspense. And uh, so I, I I love film noirs. So um, one that I had not seen until this November and it has stuck with me since is uh, Leave Her to Heaven. What shall be done with a jealous woman? Shocked, aren't you? If you were having the baby, you'd love it. Well, I never wanted it. Richard and I never needed anything else. Now this. How can you say such wicked things? Sometimes the truth is wicked. The starring roles of Jean Tierney long ago revealed her as an incomparable dramatic artist. But in the part of Ellen in Leave Her to Heaven, she gives one of the truly great dramatic performances of our time. Of the devastatingly beautiful Ellen, it was said, she would cheat, lie, deceive, stop at nothing to make the man she loved her exclusive possession. With matchless dramatic power and romantic appeal, Cornell Wilde surpasses all his previous triumphs. As Richard Harlan, he fights his mad desire to marry Ellen. Now look here, Ellen. Darling, will you marry me? Why, you unpredictable little... So that is my third film, is uh, Technicolor, genius film, uh, just a drop dead, you know, femme fatale who is insane. And I say that as uh, probably as medically uh, accurate as possible. But the just that film like blew me away. And I was surprised that after being such a big film noir fan, um, I had somehow missed it all these years. So that one is, ugh, yeah, it was a lot, but I love it. <laughs> So I, I'm just curious, is this a, is it, is this a film that you had been wanting to watch for, so you've been wanting to watch for a while? Has it been kind of like in your queue for a long time? Um, and do you expect to rewatch it again in the future? Definitely rewatch. I, I love Technicolor. I love bright films. And usually you don't get that with, with film noir, but this film is shot in Technicolor. So, you know, the reds and the blues and the greens are just, incredible and you also have a really great vincent price cameo that is not like you know you kind of know him as the again the narrator or the scary guy and he's not that in this film at all so to have just all these different kind of obscure the these elements that are kind of out of their normal in a film noir and it be as great as it is it's i mean it the content's a little dark like most film noirs but the just the the beauty of of the look and the cinematography on top of the colors and the wardrobe and oh my gosh yeah no i will definitely be revisiting it because it is incredible pretty in every single way you can think of it sounds like a, a recipe for a good time. I mean, you mentioned a Vincent Price cameo. I, I'm, you've already got me there, but the, the Technicolor, the Noir, uh, this sounds like one not to miss. So I'm certainly going to add it to my list. Listeners, the three films that Shay brought for us today are Blood Quantum, Rogue One, 
and leave her to heaven. Okay, Shay, so we're we're heading towards the conclusion of our conversation today. But what I do like to do, just for fun, on the last round, I am going to start a timer here, and I'll tell you when we're starting. But I want to give you a rapid-fire round where you have 90 seconds to talk about. And it doesn't have to be movies. You can actually step outside of movies. You can talk about TV shows. You can talk about comic books. You could talk about uh, you're going to school. could even be textbooks or a writer, uh, could be music. Like what are some of the other works of art or fiction or just media that you've consumed in the pandemic that helped you get through it? All right. I'm ready. All right. We're going to start the timer now. Okay. So Crooked Hallelujah by Kelly Jo Ford is a novel that came out in July. I'm currently working through my second read of it right now, but it follows three generations of Cherokee women in uh, southern, or maybe it is even northeastern Oklahoma and Texas, and it's just, oh, it's incredible. So that's definitely one. I've been listening to a lot of Bell and Sebastian because, you know, I need a lot of melancholy uh, music right now, and that has been my go-to. Um, when it comes to television shows, I tried to watch Narcos. Honestly, couldn't get through it. I didn't think the writing was very great. Uh, but Pedro Pascal was great, which leads me into The Mandalorian. Watched all of that have watched it several times. Again, just a great show to turn on. Uh, if you're a Star Wars fan, when you need something to, to watch. Um, I, oh gosh, again, Jersey Shore, Dance Moms, Catfish. Uh, I've watched all of those. And uh, 90 Day Fiance is the only show I watch on a weekly basis, which is again, I should not, like reality TV is not wonderful. I am now a consumer of it. So I'm embarrassed by that. Um, podcasts. I actually, my roommate has a podcast called Cherokee Word for Movies uh, that she does with her sister. That's really great. And I actually was just a guest on there. So, because yeah, <laughs> again, cool. I love talking. Um, so I listen to that podcast. And um, yeah. We're at time. 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 Wow. That was perfect. You hit it, uh, hit it right on the head. 90 oh. seconds. Okay. 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 <laughs> well, you made it, Shay. Uh, those are some great recommends. <laughs> It's funny. You're not the only person I've talked to who has said 90 Day Fiance has become a pandemic thing. I have never heard of that show until this past year. I think I've had like five or six people bring it up. So it is in the zeitgeist. There it is. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Shay, it's been uh, a real pleasure speaking with you today. Um, for our listeners out there who really enjoyed the conversation, where can they keep up with you and your work online? Yeah, I mean, the best thing to do is to find me on really any social media that I'm active on. It's just at just and then Shay, S-H-E-A, Vassar, V-A-S-S-A-R. I try to keep it consistent on all social media for that reason. All right. That's some quality branding. It took some of us way too long to get to that point to think to use the same handle for every channel. So uh, check her out there, ladies and gentlemen. Shay, uh, it's been great talking to you, getting to hear a little bit about your year. And uh, again, just tremendous work on being able to pitch some of those stories as many times as you talked about. Uh, and I'm really excited. It sounds like 2021, knock on wood, fingers crossed, uh, is shaping up to be a good year for you. Before we close out, is there anything else you would like to say about these three films or how people can best support your work? I mean, if anybody watches those films or has comments and wants to reach out to me, I'm not always the best at getting back to people on social media, but I eventually do. So that's always, I, I'm always fine with film conversation. And then for supporting work, again, just, uh, you know, if you're on Twitter and you retweet, 
a writer's work that always helps uh, reach new people and, and new audiences. So not just for me, but for any of us struggling journalists, freelancers, uh, you know, retweeting or sharing work anywhere with your friends or family, if you enjoy it or you think of someone, it, it's always just like a great thing. So Awesome. Well, Shay Vassar, writer, filmmaker, and host of the Hardcourt Honeys podcast. Thanks so much for joining the Cinematic Schematic today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to part six of our ongoing series on three films that got you through the 2020 pandemic with today's special guest, Shay Vassar. Stay tuned to hear who we'll be talking with next week. Now, I do want to remind you, listeners, if you would like to participate and be heard in this particular series, please consider sending in your three films that got you through the pandemic to our email address, thecinematropolis at gmail.com. Send us your picks for a chance to be heard on the show. Now, if you enjoyed today's conversation, another way that you can support us is by rating the podcast and subscribing on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow all of our work here at The Cinematropolis by following us on Twitter at The Cinematrop or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Cinematropolis. And you can also find more of my work by following me on Twitter at C Masters Talk. That is letter C Masters Talk. Join me next week when I talk with the host and producer of the Tunes Tunes podcast and what I would say is one of the true pop culture content creator gems of the Southwest region, Harold Story. I'll talk with Harold about his three film selections as well as how the pandemic impacted his work as a podcaster. You won't want to let this conversation slide on by. Thank you so much for joining us today, everyone. We'll catch you again next time.